You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Morning, friends. Glad you guys are here. Good to see you. Uh, Every couple of weeks here at Midtown, uh, we do something really weird. We sit around a living room and we ask questions. That's all we do. We call it our skeptics study. Uh, Here's how the study works. On the first evening, Emily and I have a few people that are maybe peripherally connected to the church or disconnected from the church. We have them over for a meal. We share our stories a bit. And then I roll my handy-dandy whiteboard down the hallway into the living room. Those of you that know me know I'm a big whiteboard guy. Uh, It says a lot about me. And uh, then I pose a question to the room of people. I ask them, what challenges or questions or difficulties have you experienced regarding the church, faith, or the Bible? And nothing is ever off limits in that room. Any question is inbounds, which means that first session usually lasts at least two hours. It goes a long, long time. And I've actually gotten an image of our last whiteboard session with our skeptics group, just so you get an idea. I want to run through some of these. First, I'd like to point out, uh, you can't really see it from where you're sitting probably, but I am so proud of my whiteboard here. I'm looking at it, and I'm just like, this is great use for it. So my nerddom is just emanating from the picture. But uh, there's another photo here that zooms in on the board a little bit. Still might be tough to see from where you're sitting, but these are some of the questions that our skeptics pose. What is truth, and how do we know it? Just a small question. What is truth? How do we know it? What is the Bible? How do we read it well? What about male and female relationships in the Bible, or sex, or patriarchy? Heaven and hell and afterlife made their way onto the board, as did justice and ecological issues. And maybe my favorite of all, in all caps, aliens made its way onto the board at the end. Things were getting a little off the rails near the end of the night, and aliens made its way up there. But that's actually kind of the point. Any question is in bounds. And then, after we've overviewed all of these things on the first night, we continue to meet every other week, to discuss all of them together. We open up our Bibles, we read articles together, I send book recommendations to folks, we unpack all of these questions. And this group, and that practice of asking questions, it's actually central to our, our identity here at Midtown. In fact, all of our other community groups, if you want to get connected to a community group, they provide space for question asking like this. And we do that because of a universal human experience. Doubt. Doubt. It's something that all of us go through at some point in our spiritual journeys. Maybe it arises in you because of some unhelpful things that you've been handed or taught in Christian circles. Maybe it arises because of genuine pain or hurt from the church that you've experienced in the past. Maybe it arises because you've encountered for the first time in your life a challenge that rattles what you thought you always knew to be true. Those sorts of doubts, friends, they're not only normal, they're oftentimes essential parts of faith. And we want to provide space for those things. See, there's this weird and unhealthy thing that happens in some church cultures or spaces where doubt becomes this inherently bad thing. People who ask hard questions are seen as less than. Just because they're wrestling with an idea, they're seen as less faithful in some way. And so the result is that we implicitly or explicitly start to assume that faith and doubt are opposed to one another, that they're opposites. And if you doubt, then that means you're less faithful. And there's one word to describe that notion. Garbage. Doubt is not opposed to faith. It is supplementary to it. It's not opposed to faith. It's supplementary to it. And that's actually a truth that Christianity has always, from the beginning, claimed. When we doubt, we're actually in really good biblical company. Take the example of the father that we meet in Mark chapter 9. 
This father has a son who is sick. He's been sick since he was little. Chronic seizures, demon possession, and he's pleading with Jesus to heal his son. He says, anything that you can do to heal my son, please do it. And Jesus says, well, anything I can do. Faith says that I can do it. If you have faith, you'll believe. And he says, I believe you can heal my son. Help my unbelief. I believe, but help the part of me that has trouble believing. And Jesus doesn't scold the man for saying that. He actually goes and heals his son. In the middle of faith and doubt, Jesus responds. Or take the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet. His entire career was devoted to pointing out the Messiah and when the Messiah had showed up. And then when Jesus came, he's like, that's the guy right there, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so John the Baptist early in his ministry made this profound claim of faith about who Jesus was. But then, not too long after, well, he's going to be killed. He's going to be beheaded. And all of a sudden, doubt starts to creep in for him. Suffering enters his life, and suddenly he starts to question whether Jesus is real. Can we relate to that? And so he sends messengers from prison to Jesus to just ask a quick clarifying question. He's like, hey, Jesus, no big deal. Just want to check. Are you legit? Are you really the Messiah? I'm having some doubts. And Jesus doesn't scold the messengers and doesn't scold John for that doubt. He actually says, well, read the Old Testament prophets that you know so well, John. Read what they say is going to happen when the Messiah comes. And then look at my life. They're mirror images of one another. I am the one that the scriptures have been pointing to. If you read the scriptures like John did, it'll be a deep assurance that Jesus is the Messiah. Or take the example of many of the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus in Matthew. All the disciples knew Jesus died a brutal death, but then they saw his real physical body, and this is what Matthew says happened. He says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. They're looking at the physical resurrected Jesus. They're in the middle of worship, and they're like, are we sure, though? Are we sure? Because the scriptures are clear. Real following of Jesus doesn't mean we show up with all the answers. It means we show up with all the questions. Real following of Jesus gets into the mud and the mire, the hard and the unexplainable. Real following of Jesus is found in the dance between doubt and faith. There's a great Russian author and philosopher, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who put it this way. He said, I believe in Christ and confess him, not like some child. My Hosanna has passed through an enormous furnace of doubt. So when we, in our lives of faith, come across an experience of doubt, we should never just bury it. We should never just ignore it. But it's also worth noting that the opposite extreme also is not a good way to handle our doubt. See, our culture right now has been called by many philosophers and historians an age of skepticism. Doubt is actually seen as a virtue. If you doubt things, you're somehow more intelligent in our culture. Doubt is viewed as an inherently good thing. And that means that oftentimes we are ruled by doubt in our lives and don't even know it. We are skeptical of everything, cynical of everything. There's a former professor of philosophy at USC named Dallas Willard who put it this way. He said, we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can be almost as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. The fashion of the age has identified mental sharpness with a pose, that is a pose of doubting everything, not with genuine intellectual method and character. We've equated intelligence with doubt. And when we do this, doubt starts to rule us. We become cynical about everything, unable to trust anyone or any institution. We're constantly overwhelmed by anxiety and hopelessness. If there is hope in the world, how could we ever know it? We just have to doubt it all the time. And everyone lives with this just veneer of doubt in their lives all the time. 
And the results are wreaking havoc on us in our culture. We live in a hopeless culture. More than 50% of Americans in their 20s right now say that they feel persistent feelings of hopelessness in their life. One in two people you meet in their 20s, persistent feelings of hopelessness. Antidepressant use has risen by more than 35% in the last six years alone. We are doubting ourselves into oblivion. And so we can't bury our doubt when it arises in us, but we also can't become people ruled by doubt. People who doubt everything and don't trust anything. What we need is a pathway into and through our doubt. A pathway towards life and healing on the other side of our doubt. We're in the middle of a teaching series here at Midtown on the book of Psalms. Uh, It's an ancient book of poetry that expresses all of the different parts of the human condition. Grief and peace and fear and pain and joy and gratitude. And these poems not only express those things, but teach us how to walk through them towards health. And they teach us to do that through the spiritual practice of prayer. And so each week we've been examining a different part of our spiritual lives, a different part of our emotional and spiritual experience, and then examining a prayer practice that the Psalms teach us on how to deal with that experience. And today, in our final week in the series, we get to explore a psalm that deals directly with the experience of doubt. And this psalm shows us not only what doubt looks and feels like in our lives, but also how we navigate it well in prayer, how we navigate it well in the day-to-day of our lives, how we navigate it well towards life and peace. And so the psalm we're reading, friends, it's Psalm 73. If you have a Bible, open it with me. Uh, Right to the middle of your Bible, Psalm 73 is where we're going to be. We're going to be verses 1 through 3, and then skip forward to verse 13 and read through the end of the psalm. Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. Uh, By the way, the words will be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there as well. Psalm 73, friends. A psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Skipping forward to verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. And if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understand their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And when my heart was grieved, when my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So after all that talk of doubt to start our time, this psalm actually starts with a statement of faith. Did you notice that? It's a statement of faith that Jews and Christians have affirmed for a long time. The psalmist says, Surely God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. God is good 
That's where the psalmist begins. And that's where many of us begin. Generic faith statements like that. Those of us who inhabit Christian spaces have said this all the time. God is good all the time. All the time? God is good. Right? But then immediately, as soon as those words have left his mouth, he says, not so fast. He pulls the rug out from under that statement. And in verse 3, he brings up what makes him doubt whether that reality is true. He says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so he starts with that good religious line that everyone's supposed to know and agree with, and then he immediately says that he was at a point in his life where he found that really hard to believe. And the reason he found it hard to believe is because of injustice. Bad and corrupt people are thriving, and good people are suffering. And so he goes on a good, angry rant about those corrupt people. We skipped that portion, but I'll give you the spark notes of that portion of the psalm. He says, they wear pride like a necklace. That is, they're boisterous, self-promoting people. Their eyes swell with fatness. They're greedy and overindulgent. They speak with malice. They're angry and gossipy and only want to tear others down at their benefit. They threaten oppression. So they wield their wealth and prosperity in order to subject others. They're corrupt and evil. And even though those things are true, things are going great for those people. They are thriving in the world. They're living their best life. They're experiencing nothing but comfort and flourishing. And actually, he says that they even get praise for the way that they live. Injustice, that's the source of his doubt, the experience that leads him to question whether God is good, whether that statement really is true. And as any good poet should, he uses a great image to describe what he's experiencing. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. And that phrase, losing your foothold, that's not something you'd say if you're walking on level ground. The ground is the ground. It's not really a foothold, right? Footholds are things that you need to have when you're fighting gravity, when you're climbing. He's using climbing language here to describe the journey of faith. And I know we've got a few climbers in the room who know this experience, but experienced climbers begin by approaching the rock and then charting the path that they're going to take. Good climbers don't just start willy-nilly climbing the rock. They figure out what the best path is going to be, what's going to hold them along the way. That plan helps them know where to put their hands and their feet so that they don't slip. But imagine a scenario in which you've charted out your plan. You know exactly how it's going to go. Other people have told you this is the best route for this rock face. And then all of a sudden, a foothold slips. All of a sudden, maybe your balance gets thrown off. All of a sudden, your foot falls off of a foothold. When that sort of thing happens, it's completely disorienting. Your mind and your body, they're thrown for a loop. Your stomach drops. Your limbs flail trying to grasp on anything that you can. That's what Asaf is saying doubt is like here. It's a profound and insightful description for us. See, at some point, all of us, regardless of our background, all of us growing up were given a certain picture of how the rock wall was going to go in our lives. If you're a person of faith, you were probably told certain things about who God is or what the Bible is, how your life is going to turn out, for you. And then you start to climb with an expectation that things are going to go that way. But then inevitably, at some point, unexpected stuff happens. Unexpected stuff happens to you or unexpected stuff happens in the world. And all of a sudden, you're thrown off balance. All of a sudden, the path you thought would hold you isn't holding you right now. He's saying doubt is a sort of disorientation of the soul that arises when we're presented with an experience or new information that breaks what we thought we could expect in life what we thought was true. And there's a couple important things he is showing us about this experience of doubt in the psalm. First, he's telling us that doubt happens to everyone. 
the author of the psalm, I mentioned his name earlier. His name is also right at the beginning of the psalm. His name's Asaph. He was a singer and songwriter and Levite. He was a religious professional. He was a guy who had immense spiritual wisdom and experience. And he doubts. Spiritual maturity, friends, is not about not doubting. It's about learning to navigate our doubt well. When you experience doubt in your life, it doesn't mean you're weak. In fact, oftentimes, it's the opposite. It means your faith has a pulse. It means that in some way, you're actually reckoning with what you believe. You're not just going along with the status quo. Spiritual maturity doesn't mean doubting less. It means navigating your doubt well. Peter Abelard, a medieval theologian, put it this way. He said, the beginning of wisdom is found in doubting. Because by doubting, we come to the question. And by seeking, we may come upon the truth. So doubts are not disqualifications from faith. They're actually opportunities to grow and deepen in faith. And that's actually the second thing that the psalm teaches us. Doubt is a catalyst for growth. That's why the psalm is here in the first place. They didn't have to put this in the Bible. They could have just said, no, have faith. Don't doubt, have faith. But they don't. They assume that doubt is going to be a part of our human experience, and it assumes that we're going to need to learn how to navigate it well. Doubt is assumed to be a part of the spiritual journey which means the Bible is trying to teach us how we can grow in and through it. The experience of doubt is often the furnace where a deeper faith is forged. Words addressed to God in doubt become God's words to doubting people. And there's maybe no better example of this in the Bible than maybe the most famous doubter of them all. You guys know his name? Thomas, Thomas right? Poor guy. Doubting Thomas is what, he just has that stuck to him his whole life, right? Doubting Thomas. He was one of the disciples, and he's told by the other disciples that Jesus had risen from the grave after he was crucified. And the disciples say they saw him and they believed. And Thomas says, well, I mean, that wouldn't have been enough for me. I would have needed to touch him. I would have needed to see the sunlight through the holes in his wrists. I would have needed to poke my hand in the holes. I would have needed more evidence. A real skeptic, right? But then, Jesus, he doesn't scold Thomas, he shows up to Thomas. And he says, all right, touch me. Put your hands in the holes. And then Thomas proclaims, my Lord and my God. Do you see what Thomas' story is telling us? It's telling us that doubt was the starting point for a deeper faith for Thomas. Doubt was the starting point where he could eventually proclaim, my Lord and my God. It was the catalyst that deepened his faith. His questions drew him to a deeper knowledge of Jesus. And you guys, I can tell you that in my own faith journey, this has happened over and over and over. My faith has largely been born out of my doubts. I've angrily doubted the goodness of God when my dad died of pancreatic cancer at age 55. And that doubt led me to reckon with the grief and suffering that I was going through, my family was going through, and I experienced God's presence and goodness in the middle of it. God brought me through death into life on the other side of it through my doubt. I've doubted the seeming lack of care that the American church has had for justice and ecological health. And that doubt led me to a deeper study of the Bible. And it turns out the Bible is dripping with messages of justice and ecological healing. That's actually a part of the kingdom. And so I found that my doubt led me to a deeper faith. I've doubted poor, hyper-literalistic readings of the Bible that flatten it out and ignore things like genre or context or nuance. And that doubt led me to church history and to good scholarship. And I found ways of experiencing and reading the Bible that have deepened my faith on the other side of those doubts. I've doubted the view of men as dominant rulers and women as submissive followers that I was handed. And what I found is in the Bible and the early church, the opposite is actually prescribed. That mutuality between men and women is the picture that God has for humans. 
over and over and over again, friends. I've encountered doubt, I've navigated it, and I've found a deeper faith on the other side. I could keep going. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that those doubts were somehow pleasant. They often weren't. They were hard. They were hard to navigate. It felt disorienting. But most growth doesn't feel great when it's happening. Most growth feels hard when it's happening, but on the other side of it, you can look back and say, man, that doubt grew me in profound ways. And so the Bible, and this psalm specifically, they're putting an important question in front of all of us. What if you could process your experience of doubt in such a way that you look back on it and say, thank you, God, because it deepened my faith? What if you could learn to navigate doubt that way? There's a a poet named Rainier Maria Rilke who expresses this beautifully. He wrote a book called Letters to a Young Poet. He was talking to him about how to reckon with questions and doubt. He said this, Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like they're locked rooms, like books written in a very foreign language. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then, gradually without knowing it, live along some distant day into the answer. It might be, friends, that struggling with your doubt or that experience is actually the best thing for your faith. It might be that you just need to sit with that thing for a little while, that you need to bring others into that thing, that you need to bring that doubt before God. It might be that that's the best thing for you. In fact, Asaf gives us a template saying doubt actually was the best thing for his faith in many ways. He does four different things to navigate his doubt that I think we can learn in our own experiences today. Four things he does. He doubts his doubt. He engages his experience, not just his intellect or his mind. He balances his beliefs, and he grasps for God's hand. Doubts his doubts, engages his experience, balances his beliefs, grasps for God's hand. First, doubts his doubts. In verse 3, right as soon as he starts to question whether God is good, he says this, I envied the arrogant. I envied the arrogant. You see what he's doing? He's acknowledging that as real as the problem of injustice in the world is, that he kind of has some ulterior motives in his doubt. He actually has a complicated soul underneath his doubt. What he's telling us here is, well, you know, I actually didn't have a problem with injustice until it affected me. Until I wasn't getting the things that I wanted. Until I found out that those scummy people were getting what I really wanted. Then, then I started to doubt. What he's doing is something that many of us don't want to do in the middle of our doubts. He's acknowledging that there's an honest motivation, injustice, but there's also a dishonest motivation, envy. That his own corruptness is actually driving him to doubt. And we need to learn to do the same thing sometimes. Friends, all of us in this room are a hodgepodge of intellectual and emotional and hormonal and cultural and moral and social and sinful components. And that means our doubt is always fed by different motivations. And we've got to do the hard work of identifying what really is feeding our doubt. There's a scholar named Tim Mackey who uses a helpful image to describe this. He says, think of doubt as like a lake, a large body of water. And that lake is being fed by all sorts of rivers, tributaries that kind of flow into the lake. And if the lake gets poisoned in some way, a good place to start looking is the rivers, the sources that feed that lake. Because that lake is only the source of other things. When we encounter doubt, friends, we need to deeply examine the rivers, the motives that might be fueling our doubt. There's actually a guy who's an atheist, amazing writer, Aldous Huxley is his name. He did this when he started to doubt Christianity. He actually wrote about it. And he said, yeah, I had all these intellectual doubts, but really I had ulterior motives underneath. I used the intellectual doubts to justify things, but I really wanted to leave Christianity because of another reason. He says this 
in his book, Ends and Meads. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. And so I assumed it had none and was able to find without any difficulty satisfying reasons to assume that the world had no meaning because I had already decided I didn't want it to. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. And he says this, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I doubted, but the only reason I doubted is because I wanted to have sex with who I wanted to have sex with. That's really what it was. That's what led me. And I had all these other reasons, these intellectual reasons, but really my doubt was fueled by something else. This is profound honesty from somebody who rejected Christianity. He said, no, I didn't want it because I want to do what I want to do. My desire should rule. We need to do that with our doubts. We need to doubt our doubts sometimes. We need to doubt whether we're really coming at it honestly. We need to think what rivers might be feeding this. Do some real heart searching. And by the way, to be really clear, I can't stand up here and tell you what your motivations are. I can't do that. But you can. You can start to deeply unpack some of those motivations in your own life. And you can invite others into those motivations. But that's where we need to start with our doubt. We need to learn to doubt our doubts. And then, the second thing that Asaf does, teaches us to do, is to engage our experience, not just our intellect. Verses 16 and 17, he says this, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, until I entered the sanctuary of God. What he's saying is this, when he stayed trapped in his own mind with the doubts, when he isolated in his doubts, When he reckoned with them from purely an intellectual level, it led him only to deeper despair. Finding resolution in the healing of his doubt came when, not when he retreated into isolation, but when he entered the sanctuary. When he engaged that doubt in a community of people, and we engaged that doubt before God. So we need to become people who, in our doubt, actually show up to experience God and test him out. If you're doubting God, God's a good person to bring that up to. Hey, if you're real, show up. That's a great prayer, friends. That prayer is prayed all the time throughout the scriptures and throughout history. You guys, doubts, they're never just intellectual things. They're always experiential. They come when we go through something or when we're immersed in a certain environment. And that means you don't just think your way into doubt. And you also can't just think your way out of it. You need alternative experiences to match up to those experiences that have brought about doubt in your life. There's a great story from a guy named C.S. Lewis. I'm adapting this a bit, but I think it's helpful for us. Imagine uh, you're a single woman, and some hunk of a guy asks you out. Just this guy's legit. And naturally, you say yes on that date, right? And then you go and tell your closest friends, your 10 closest friends, hey, oh, I'm going out with this great guy. And they're like, what's his name? And you say his name, and they're like, don't go out with that guy. All 10 of your friends across the board know exactly who he is, and they know he is bad news. They know that he's the sort of guy that as soon as you show interest, He'll lose interest and dump you. He's done that countless times. He's going to do it again. And so you, as the single woman, you go into this date with a guy, and you have their voices in your head. But then when you're with them, you start to doubt their voices. Because this guy, he's funny. He's intelligent. He does CrossFit. The dude is legit. And so you're starting to think, you know what? Maybe I'm different Maybe those truth claims that my friends were telling me, maybe they're wrong. You see what's happening here? In your mind, you have a claim that the guy is bad news. But in your experience, you have a claim that the guy is awesome. And that experience is making you question what you know to be true in your mind. In other words, the truth of your friends, it's on audio, but the truth of the stud muffins on video. 
And that's never going to be a fair fight, you guys. That's never going to be a fair fight. If your heart is engaged by doubt, you can only fairly work through that by engaging your heart in an alternative experience to question that doubt. The only way to test the truth of something is by, well, testing the alternative. If this is really true, well, then I should go back. I should talk to my community. I should talk to my gals. They said this guy was bad news. Well, maybe I should tell them. And what you might find is when you go there, they're like, yeah, I felt the same way on the first date. He dumped me, too. You might find that they actually had the same doubts. And they worked through them, and it led them to brokenheartedness. That's what the psalmist is illustrating for us with doubts here. He doesn't isolate in his mind when he doubts. He brings those things into faith community, and he voices them. He says, I've experienced and seen something that makes me doubt, injustice in the world. And so I'm going to bring that into a community of people and before God honestly. And I'm going to test whether there's something that actually is a better experience, a true experience here, that can make me doubt the doubt out there. Friends, if you have an intellectual doubt about faith or Christianity, go and seek intellectuals in your community. I promise you, you're not the first person to ask that question. None of us are that special. The psalm here is telling us 3,000 years people have been asking these sorts of questions. They're not new. And there are people who have reckoned through them and found deep faith on the other side. If you have an intellectual doubt, bring it into your community with the intellectuals. Or if your doubt is emotional, go and seek out emotive experiences with God and in community. Meditate. Sing. Pray. Do art or dance. I promise the emotions you've experienced out there that made you doubt, there are things that other people have experienced as well, and they found way to deeper faith through them. You guys, I can't count how many people I've talked to who said to me over a coffee or a meal that doubt is just too much for them, that they can't believe the God of the Bible or the God they were handed growing up. They've encountered doubt, and so they've just walked away. And I usually have two questions for them. The first thing I ask is, well, tell me about the God that you can't believe anymore. Tell me about the experiences and ideas that made you doubt. And a majority of people go on to describe a vengeful God, a hypermoralistic God, a distant God who's far away from them when they suffer, a patriarchal God or a nationalistic God or a God that contradicts science or a God who's longing to punish people in an eternal lake of fire. And they've been told or experienced that that's who God is. Sometimes they've been told that by people who really have an axe to grind with the Bible. And my response to them when they bring up all those objections is, oh, yeah, I've doubted that God. Actually, I don't believe that God either. I'm an atheist about the same God that you're describing. And then I ask a follow-up question. I say, well, in the middle of that doubt, have you brought those things to anyone else besides me right now? Have you talked about those in community with people who know a lot about the Bible, know a lot about church history and that sort of thing? And they're like, well, no, I mean, I doubted it, and then I, I left. I had the doubt, and so I left. Well, it's no wonder doubt wins the day. You didn't give it a fair fight. The experience of doubt was never countered by an experience of faith. It was never countered by an experience of God. I mean, imagine if we did that with every other relationship in our lives. Imagine if we got a bad description of someone, and so we just said, well, they're a terrible person, and never actually got to know them. The only way to get to know someone is to spend time with them, to immerse yourself in experiences with them. If we lived on our first impressions, none of us would have any friends. And yet we do that with God all the time. We say, well, I have a doubt and I have to leave. That's not the way to deal with doubt. We have to engage our hearts, engage our experiences to know if Jesus is real or not. So pray or sing or read the Bible, sacrificially serve. That's the only way to test this thing if it's real or not. Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. He said, yes, doubt will come, even to the one who follows Christ. 
But the only person who has a right to leap forward, even with a doubt, is someone whose life bears the marks of imitation. That is someone who's really following it, trying it out. Someone who by a decisive action at least tries to go so far that becoming a Christian can still be a possibility. Everyone else must hold their tongue. They have no right to put in a word about Christianity, least of all against. You can't doubt the thing that you haven't experienced and jumped into. That's the second thing here. We engage our experience by actually trying this Christianity thing on, bringing that doubt into community. Third thing we do, we have to balance our beliefs. Verse 18 shows us this. Once Asaf is, or Asaf is in the sanctuary, in verse 18 it says, Surely you place them, the wicked, on slippery ground, and you cast them down a ruin. He's actually using foothold language, similar to what he did earlier. He said, well, I have a slippery foothold. There's doubt about injustice in my mind, but the people out there don't have a better answer either. Their feet are on slippery ground. In fact, they're slipping more than I'm slipping. He's comparing beliefs, balancing beliefs, to see what truly makes sense of his experience in the world. We need to learn how to do that, friends, especially in our cultural setting, because our culture wants us to believe that if you're a person of faith, you've left your mind at the door. Faith is the opposite of reason. And so most of us think we have a choice between belief or unbelief. That's a false dichotomy. It's never belief belief versus unbelief. It's always belief versus belief. It's always belief versus belief. The only way you can doubt any belief is by standing upon another belief which you say is superior or better. There's no such thing as some neutral place of fact that you can just evaluate everything objectively. There's only beliefs versus other beliefs. And so we need to learn how to compare beliefs. If I'm doubting a belief in Christianity, well, what are the alternatives? What are the alternative explanations of my life in the world? If you're in doubt, the only way to properly navigate it is to test other beliefs. There's a great author, his name's Sheldon Vanakin, and he describes this in his own journey, in his book, A Severe Mercy. He talks about it like gaps. He's needing to figure out how to jump the gap from what he can know by fact and what he has to believe. He says this, I saw a gap between the probable and the proved. That is, it could be possible, but I couldn't prove it. And so how was I to cross that gap? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted letters of fire across the sky, and I got none of those things. And so I continued to hang about on the edge of the gap. But then I realized, my God, there was a gap behind me as well. To not believe in Jesus was also a leap of faith. Maybe the leap of acceptance of Christ was a horrifying gamble, but What of the leap to rejection? There might be no absolute certainty that Christ was God, but there was no certainty he was not. And that means I could not reject Jesus without great faith. And then he uses a really British phrase, this was not to be born. He says, there was only one thing I could do once I saw the gap behind me. I turned away from it, and I flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. No matter what, friends, you're going to believe something. So learn to balance your beliefs. That's how you navigate doubt in a life of faith. And then finally, What Asaf teaches us is to grasp for God's hand. Verse 21 shows us this. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was in this deep place of doubt, when I was pricked in the heart, I was stupid and arrogant, ignorant. I was like a brute beast toward you. And then he says this, Nevertheless, I was continually with you. You hold my right hand. That's a remarkable claim. He says that in the middle of all the pain and agony and fear that he felt in his doubt, in the middle of his foothold slipping, It was precisely there that God was most near to him. It was precisely there that God held on to him. And that's why he closes the way he does. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all his works. He made his way through doubt in a beautiful way. Remember how he started this psalm. He started with a belief. He said, surely God is good to Israel. And then as he processes that belief, he realizes, well, that the belief wasn't really what he thought. When he said God was good, what he really meant is God's going to give me all the hookups. What he really meant is God's going to hook me up with worldly prosperity. And when that didn't happen, it led him to envy. It led him to doubt God's goodness. He had a faulty belief to start. And only when doubt crept in did he realize that his initial belief was faulty. Only when he experienced the hardship of doubt did he realize that God's goodness was about way, way more than just worldly prosperity. And so it took his doubt to deepen his faith and to realize that God's love actually transcends worldly prosperity. God's love goes much deeper into all the depths of our doubt with us. God's love is eternally deep and wide. That's what he says at the end. But he needed the doubt to get there. Or else he would have just lived his whole life thinking, well, yeah, God's made things really good for me, and worldly prosperity is what life in God is really about. What he realizes at the end is that the experience of God's absence was actually God's presence near to him. God was using the doubt the whole time to deepen his faith, to deepen his understanding of God's love. And it became greater on the other side of his doubt. That's why he pours forth joy at the end, because he realizes that precisely the catalyst for experiencing God's love was his doubt. And he's overjoyed to know that no matter where he goes, even in his deepest doubts, God's love is there with him. And so the psalm in the end teaches us that we need to become people who look for God's presence, who grasp for God's hand in the middle of what feels like his absence. And there's another story in the New Testament that I think gives us an image of this as Christians. And so I want to give you this image, and then we'll reflect on it over communion. Uh, It's the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In that moment, Jesus, he's about to go to the cross, and he's on his knees. He's crying. He's pouring forth blood and sweat and tears because of what he's about to go through. He's feeling the abyss of what is God's absence, or at least what he experiences as God's absence. He's going through the abyss of doubt. And it's there he cries out to God. And it's precisely in that moment when Jesus experiences both the humanness of God's absence, because Jesus is human, but also the amazing presence of God in the middle of his doubt, because Jesus is God. Gethsemane is the story of all of our human doubt and pain and grief being known and experienced by Jesus. But then God's loving presence in the midst of that that doubt through Jesus walking through it towards the cross and towards new life and resurrection. This is a God who enters into our doubts, who walks through our doubts, so that nothing, not even the deepest, darkest feeling of his absence, can separate us from him. That's the God of Gethsemane. That's the God of Psalm 73. God is here in the middle of what feels like his absence. And God calls us all beloved. He says, I care for you. I love you, even in the midst of your darkest hour. So grasp from my hand. Because it's there. It's waiting for you. And it's full only of eternal love and grace. Let's pray. 